All right, welcome. It's Jeff Mayhew. It's John Beatty. It's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Jeff. How are you? I am doing very good. I noticed you've uh, you participated in Ash Wednesday. Yes, I actually uh, they did a, like a service, and I missed it because I was on a phone call with maybe I don't want to say the name, but maybe one of the worst uh, postage companies in the world. <laughs> is it the post office? <laughs> no, I wish it was. It was easy as just oh, it's a government bureaucracy. No, it's it's a uh, a company that you could say grifts off the the bureaucracy. Oh, great. Oh, okay. You know, like like most companies, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that what most businesses is a grift off the government like pension at this point? Isn't that what um, like? Unfortunately, that's what many of them are coming to. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So. Uh, How's life, man? It's been a it's been a few weeks. We uh we took off last week. Things were busy, and then we had our meeting this past week. So like it's you know we haven't had the podcast in a while. How's things going? Um, it's been good. I mean, I, I think the lead up to the pod, the uh, meeting was definitely there's preparation for that, and then uh, it, it's definitely uh, can be draining. I think we're if you're interested, we're trying to host a kind of family friendly one around the Lovettsville area. So you know, reach out and um, it'll be around early March on a Sunday afternoon. Um, so March 12th is what we're shooting for. But um, I think just, you know, getting more people in, in, informed is is key. Um, the school board's crazy, but yeah. Yeah. What's new? The, uh, yeah, the meeting was fun. Um, we, the material that we put out, I think is really good. I mean, we're writing it together. Um, I think it looks really pretty. You know, I put a lot of work into it. I, we got it professionally printed this week. Um, Overall, like if you attend all the courses, you gain all the material. At the end, what you have is essentially a textbook on government and history. Um, and it's just like, you know, our mission is to have better informed citizens. So yeah. they elect better leaders and better leaders will lead us better, right? Like that's, it's just like very bare bones, like basic function of society type, you know, goals here for us. Um and uh, low expectations, if you will. Well, I mean, it's not, it's actually very high expectations, you know, because, you know, for thousands of years, people did not believe that regular citizens could become informed enough to govern themselves um, until our republic was formed. And even now, I think our our leaders don't seem to think that people are capable of governing themselves. They, you know, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, they're kind of always grasping for power and, you know, kind of saying, hey, let me do it for you. I mean, the whole fundraising apparatus is, hey, give me your money and I will take care of your problems, except yeah. for the fact that we keep giving them our money and they keep making our problems worse. <laughs> so I think, you know, having people understand why is really important. So. Uh, I think it's coming together. I'm 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 really happy with it. It's all about asking the right question, you know. Right, and and something that you mentioned, we're we're gonna put out a um, a family friendly one where you can bring your kids in Lovettsville, and the adults can sit and just have this very brief conversation about structure and function of Republican government, and the kids can play. And then, you know, what I've been telling people is, I know it's hard to come to a meeting. I'll come to you. Right. We can come to you. We can set it up, um, you know, reach out. Hey, Jeff, I'm really interested in learning about this, but going to a meeting kind of sounds scary. Can I can I have you over at my house with like five to ten of my closest friends? And I'd be like, yeah, absolutely. We can totally do that. You know, um, so 
reach out, like John said, and uh, we'll get that moving. So what's what's new with you? I heard you uh, got a stomach bug going through. Like everybody in my house was sick. It was Sadie Saturday night up all night. Then it was no wait. It was Eleanor first. Sorry. Then it was Sadie. Then it was Oliver. It's just been a week. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, luckily we had they had the extra day off from school, so they only had to miss one day. And then um, it gave me time to read. I think I read through like fifteen hundred pages in the last three days. That's pretty good. That's fun. Yeah. I've I found I've had more time to do some reading and um and and also one of the things if you ever see Jeff's books he's got them all annotated with notes and things and I've been I sometimes underline stuff but I'm trying to be more diligent and actually like writing stuff on note cards with the idea that if I can if I don't remember what it is I can go refer back to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm uh, I'm learning from you, dude. It's uh, I tell you what. So people. They talk about my books and like, hey, why do you do this all this time? And a lot of it is like, uh, it's mental, right? If I if I see it, if I highlight it, I'm more likely to remember it. And if I think it's important when I'm reading it, you know, I'll know I'll need to know it again. Because I, I recognized mm-hmm. early on when you're reading all these different stories, you get these different versions of events. And so yeah. like, my whole purpose is read as much as possible and then put it all together. Figure out what's real and what's not real. And I'll tell you what, tonight's prep for this podcast, all my annotation and notes have really come in handy. Like I have, I read uh, the Woodrow Wilson biography back in um, January of last year, I believe it was. And like, I literally have all these notes with the page numbers in here. And so like, one of the things we're going to talk about tonight is Fetterman's stroke. And we're going to talk about Wilson. And I went to, I went to this and I looked it up, page 642. And then I reread the few pages on the stroke and I'm like, I'm ready to go. <laughs> that's great. No, I mean, like, I think that's so key. It's, it's not just reading the book, but if you're going to try to um, tell a story around it or try to bring it into the facts, like having that quick reference um, is incredibly important, especially when, you know, you just can't chat GPT or, or Google anything. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, like, let's let's talk about Fetterman. Like, it, you know, he got checked into a mental hospital. I'm sorry, like uh, Walter Reed, uh, he's suffering from severe depression and I know like depression could be debilitating. Um, it's one of those weird things that it's can be incredibly hard to control. Uh, and you, there's a whole process, you know, I imagine there's probably some anxiety around being a Senator, be, not being able to really communicate and kind of perhaps a feeling of inadequacy that you can't quite do your job. So I, I, I don't envy him in his, in his situation, but, you know, I, I think what you were trying to, you maybe you're going to point to is, Maybe this all could have been prevented. Yeah. I mean, so I wrote an article for Newsweek uh, a few months ago or whatever about the Santos situation. And Santos, you know, that's the big liar in Congress. I mean, what does that even mean? One of many, one of many. Like they're all liars, right? Like it's just like the most obvious liar in Congress now because he was so blatantly disrespectful to the rules, which we shouldn't be surprised about. Um, And I'm thinking like, This whole Fetterman thing and the Democratic Party, you know, as much as they like, hey, vote, you know, expel Santos, expel Fetterman, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I mean, it's unfortunate. He's got to really like, this is a health issue, whatever. But the people around him haven't served him well. And the Democratic Party did not serve the country well by forcing this guy through and basically lying to all of us saying, yeah, he's going to be able to do his job. Remember, He's how many senators are there? A hundred, right? hundred, yeah. For, for 400 or for 330 million people, he holds an enormous amount of power and he's checked in 
to a mental hospital for depression, you know, from his stroke. This was all like, duh, you had a stroke. You, sh you shouldn't have been going into Congress. It was clear he couldn't communicate. And, you know, I hate using the media, right? But like the the Democrats and the Fetterman campaign and even his wife, I think, to a degree, they told us he was going to be okay. And mm -hmm. it's very obvious that he isn't. Um, it's bad for our country. It makes our leadership weak. Um, and I think back to, I think back to Wilson, right? And so we actually were talking about this on our group chat a little bit about World War One, right? And and uh, Craig was like, hey, what, what led to World War II? And I was like, well, <laughs> Woodrow Wilson getting a stroke. <laughs> like you could pinpoint that. Like there's no guarantee that he would have been successful, but he had a pretty good plan for how to manage the the situation over there and and one of his big things was don't punish the german people mm -hmm. right because if you punish the german people there's there they'll be more likely to you know want to start a revolution or a war in the future um or they'll, just, they'll be resentful i mean like that's the key thing is right. is they're just not gonna it's just gonna be bad blood and bad blood doesn't go away right and and wilson was you know he's he's called the moralist you know obviously there's the whole racial side of Wilson where he you know was kind of a bigot but at the same time he was a he was very faithful man and he he really believed in humanity he wanted peace this is something that he cared deeply about he had a, a pretty good plan and then he had a stroke okay and he is very incapacitated after this and they kind of keep it from the American people he's not able to go and sell this plan that he has anymore to the European powers he's not able to do it at home the they have a very partisan senate um I can't remember the senators now um I get their names confused it's probably in my notes but um it was a uh, Roosevelt's friend uh the Republican he was a thorn in his side realistically and he kind of he pared back this treaty significantly where it was toothless and all the while Woodrow Wilson is in his bedroom and Edith his wife is like running the White House and this is again a situation where the American people are not served um you know it would have been best if the vice president would have had the cojones to step up and you know we talk a lot about people seizing power when they shouldn't this is this is a situation where the vice president should seize power the president was incapacitated mm -hmm. you know he was helping he was doing more but he let edith do a lot and you know there's a lot of talk he made some comments the vice president it was marshall um i can't remember his first reason it's not john uh i have I can't remember his first reign right now, but he was vice president and he made some comments that kind of made it sound like he didn't want to be president. And he was he he had no intention of ever assuming that type of role. Um, it was too big of a responsibility for him. And realistically, the the party at the time, the American people, they shouldn't have put him in that position. You know, um, you kind of want to put people that don't want the power in power. But mm -hmm. at the same time, you want them to, like, use the power when they get there. Yeah, when the, when the reins get in their hands, they're willing to drive the coach. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because those people, those are kind of the type of people that you can trust. And you can see this in history for a lot of different situations. And, uh, you know, I think back to that and I go, maybe if the people of Pennsylvania knew this story, maybe if they understood that this lie that the American people were told and this, you know, other check to the people's power and the vice president didn't do their job, um, hurt the American people, like hurt the world, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, 
in theory, if Wilson can sell his plan and the German people are not punished the way that they are, do we have World War II? Is Hitler able to like coerce the German people into hating the Jews the way that they do if they're not suffering the way that they are? Right. You know, I mean, I think it's plausible, you know. And so here we sit again. We have a senator, not a president, who has a stroke, who's running for office. Or he's, he's not even a senator, right? He's just running for office. And the American people have a choice, or the people of Pennsylvania have a choice. And they didn't make the right one. Not to say that the other guy was any good, right? I mean, I think the real pressure is, at least now, is the people of Pennsylvania should be demanding he resign. And they shouldn't just give the power to the next in charge. They should hold a special election and allow the people of Pennsylvania to pick a new senator, in my opinion. Yeah, I think so. You know, again, representation is important. Again, maybe I'm not happy with the senators being elected by the people anyways, but that's the system we have right now. It's the best we can do with the rules. Get them out of there. Let them take care of, like, family first, right? Like, you have a wife. Like, you have your health. You need to get better you don't need this responsibility and the American people need somebody who can handle the responsibility. Yeah. And can do the job. I, th I think that's the key thing is uh, the representation aspect, not being able to listen to your constituents. Uh, maybe they won't always be happy with what you have to say, but at least that they feel that they're heard. And um, I would say half, you know, no one in Pennsylvania will feel like they're heard when their senators in a mental hospital and the, you know, uh, family situations that people go into um, some of uh, the, isolation in that situation like there is no outside contact so he's not a, none of not only is he you know it's not like he's, he's on a on a bed lying down and he can read his, his messages and stuff like he's probably completely isolated in order to help him get through this situation because uh, like you know suicidal thoughts are, are bad and you want to get someone as far away from that as possible get them in a, a situation where um <clears throat> they can begin to heal uh mentally and so I would imagine he's done doing anything Senate related, which is good in a certain sense in order for him to get better, but it's bad for our country. Um, going back to Wilson and the Senate at the time, like it, there was there was a strong isolationist wing of the Republican Party that was willing to get and able to get those amendments. Like, you, you know, the United Nations Treaty comes to the, the United States Senate. And like you said, something gets passed, but it's very watered down and is basically toothless. And that's because people are able to work through the system. They're able to cut deals. And they're able to get the vote to go in the particular way they want. So, you know, in a situation where we're, I was seeing on Twitter, it's like World War III is, is trending. You know, like people are, are understandably very concerned about what's going on between uh, chemical spills in, in Ohio and between Biden going to Ukraine um, and definitely doing a little saber rattling and then going in Poland and doing some more saber rattling. Like, we're in a very precarious situation and to not have someone in that hundred person deliberative body, I think is, is a disservice to all of us Americans. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. And you, uh, you mentioned the, the isolationist wing and kind of toothless. And this is, we talk about this a little bit in our class is like, where are the powers who holds them and who's allowed to wield them? Mm -hmm. And so like, a treaty is wielded by the president, right? Like we trust that in one person because we understand that to negotiate something that complex with world powers, you can't have a hundred people involved, right? So we we are supposed to trust our president to go out and do that. And then the the Senate, like they're there to advise and consent. Mm -hmm. They're not there to play politics. And it's like, look, 
you think this is right for our country, come here and tell us why, which I think, I do think that if Wilson was able to come and sell it to the American people, he's able to overcome this isolationist wing realistically, because he was, you know, he was an electric politician, um, put aside his faults and everything you don't like about his progressivism. He was good at his job. And um, he would have, I think he would have been able to get this done and the American people would have been served. And even if you would have had a capable backup, right? Somebody that as a vice president that was on in step with the president, that understood the negotiations, that was able to come in and take over and sell it to the American people afterwards, you would have been served. What we were not served with was a president that had a stroke, that was kept from the American people, with his wife running the country, a vice president who was too scared to seize power and a Congress that was, or excuse me, a Senate that was more concerned with their political objectives than keeping the American people and the world safe. Um, and here we are again, Fetterman, same situation, you know, mm -hmm. our same results, right? They're not concerned about keeping us safe. They're not concerned about doing their job. They're concerned about political wins and losses. And mm -hmm. it's just got to get over this people. No, and, keeping that 50 vote majority. Yeah. 50 and yeah. We're going to talk about that 50 vote majority here in a second, too, or the, the majority vote. But um, so transfer or what is, what is it? transition? There we go. Let's transition to something else that is scary, you know, that where the American people are kind of um, what is her name? MTG, MTG, um, MTG, Magic the Gathering, right? That's all I always think when was, I see that. It was this weekend. She was talking about um, succession. The Great Divorce, that's what it said, all right? That's what I saw. Um, this is like, I mean, first, what do you think about this, John? Let's, let's let, let, you go first. I mean, I remember in 2000, was it 2004 when Bush won? Or was it 2000? I mean, I was young, and I remember this whole thought of like, well, we're going to divide blue states and red states. And just being young at the time, it didn't really seem like it would make that much sense. Also, because you kind of had the two sort of the coasts that were... The democratic enclaves and you have to go to the middle heartland so it wouldn't really have made sense of that country and you know being a young middle schooler at the time i could see that was a silly idea so you know middle schooler me is now uh, a little bit older and i can still see this as a silly idea like what's what are you going to gain from this you're you know you're you're so fed up with this with not getting your way like a little like a little child and throwing a tantrum and you think well i'm just going to break break everything and hope that um you know, people will uh, let me be my, be my way. Like, honestly, like, I hate to say, but like, we fought a war over this. Like, there's a, a need for people to come together. Um, but there's also a need for you to kind of work through the system. And if you don't like it, perhaps change the rules and system, but to go out there and say, well, we'll just, if we just break apart, we, that'll solve all of our problems. We can, I saw the, the little screenshot of something. We can govern our schools as we want. You know, we don't have to do any of these um, industrial policies that other states do. Like, instead we, of throwing we, a tantrum and saying, like, like, sorry. So we could do all that right now. Yeah, no, we, we could. Elected better leaders, not like her, right? <laughs> like, I mean, come on. It's just, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, like, it's, you know, you're fed up with, 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 I think the big thing is everyone talks in Virginia, like, oh, don't California, Virginia, where some people are like, well, don't Virginia, California. If you don't like the way the state is going, you know, maybe you should you should come up with the reasons why other than saying like, well, we did it this way. You're trying to change it. You're just bad because you're trying to change. It. I think like there's some some back and forth to the merits of this. 
you know, I was thinking about uh, one of the big things is maybe electrification of vehicles. Now, I have a, a little car that has a battery. It's electric drivetrain, but it also has a little gas engine in the back. And I think this is like the perfect metaphor for how we might change our economy. It's kind of a slow thing where you've got, you introduce electrification, but you're still kind of like got this backup of petrol, petroleum. And the one side is is not wanting to do that. They're wanting to go full on, electrify everything, much to the chagrin of everyone. And I think that's what it, what Europe is seeing right now is if you if you get rid of uh, fossil fuels completely and you don't have the backup, you're going to have suffering and stuff and people are going to be upset. And if anything, if that was your goal is to electrify everything, but you're dealing with um, the, the people, you know, they're going to be upset. And they're not going to appreciate that. So I think, um, sorry, getting on a tangent, like I think being slow in something and trying to like sell people on an idea and trying to talk about the benefits, acknowledge any negatives, but again, talk about the benefits and say like, yeah, we can work through those, those problems and get something better. But to just go on and say like, oh, I'm done with you people, you know, bye, good, good luck, good riddance. Like that's not, A, that's not human. That's so um, animalistic and it's just not going to make anything better. Well, so yes, that is definitely the way that we should do things, right? I mean, we go back mm -hmm. to the go back to the original secession, right? There's there's mm -hmm. been lots of talk of secession in this country um, since the founding. Um, the first occurred realistically; it wasn't secession; it was nullification, right? And that was with the Aliens and Sedition Acts. You have Jefferson, you have Madison. They write the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. Jefferson who, you know, is Jefferson, right? <laughs> he's, he's flamboyantly um, against tyranny, so mm -hmm. much so that he invites revolution and tyranny. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and you see that in the French Revolution, and he basically says, hey, the states can nullify, right? And look, Jefferson wasn't even in the country when the, the Constitution was being, like, written and ratified. Like, he right. has no understanding of what's going on, and somehow people always come back to, like, this understanding of nullification. Madison, on the other hand, he writes the Virginia Resolutions, and he kind of, like, he's like, maybe, maybe you could nullify federal law under really, really harsh circumstances, but you have an obligation as citizens, as lawmakers, as legislatures, as long as you have your freedoms, which I think the most important freedom is the freedom of speech, mm -hmm. as long as you have the freedom of speech and the, and the right to representation, then you have the ability to change your government, to change your laws, and you should do it legally. And if it takes time, it takes time. That's, yeah. just, like, that's the rules that we have in place. And you can't break the rules just because the other guy's breaking the rules, right? Like if if the bad guy breaks the rules, you can't just be like, all right, I'm going to break the rules too. No. Because that just makes you the bad guy, right? And this is, you go back and you had the nullification. You've got nullification of 1828 with John C. Calhoun. We've talked about that on the show before. And this gets me to kind of with MTG. Because that nullification started with Calhoun because he wanted to advance the idea and his peculiar institution of slavery because he saw it dying, Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's all, it wasn't just the United States that was turning against uh, slavery. It was the world. You know, uh, Britain had outlawed slavery and were, you know, against the slave trade and all that stuff. And so you fast forward through the Tyler administration or through the Jackson administration. And, you know, Calhoun is kind of at battle with Jackson over nullification. 
And Jackson is a slaveholder, but at the same time, he's a union guy. He's a constitution guy. He goes, you can't do this. And I won't let you, even if you want, even if it is for slavery, I don't care. You know, these are the rules. We play by the rules. And so during the last days, last years of Tyler's administration, the annexation of Texas comes into play. And so this happens because Texas is realistically like they know the, that America wants to expand. It's not a secret. John Quincy right. Adams wanted uh, Texas. Andrew Jackson wanted Texas. Uh, William Clay wants Texas. He's running for the presidency um, all the time, it seems like. <laughs> and and so Texas is like, how do we protect our, or not Texas, Mexico is like, how do we protect ourselves from this American expansionism? And so they ha they come up with this really brilliant idea to give land away to immigrants because they don't have enough people to fill this land right. and take care of it. And who takes advantage of that but American citizens, right? So they leave, you know, because the country's in like a recession. It's hard to buy property. There's not enough, like the, the monetary policy's tight, right? And so the Americans move in and they move in with their slaves, even though Mexico says, you're not allowed to have slaves here. Yeah. They bring them in. And so this led to tension and violence, which led to a revolution, which Texas was able to uh, declare their independence, free themselves, um, is in 1836, right? So this is during the Jackson administration. And he, uh, Andrew Jackson recognizes the independence of Texas. This legitimizes the republic, essentially. Um, like I mentioned before, John Quincy Adams, Clay Jackson, they all wanted Texas. So they're kind of like, eh, I don't really know. It's 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 funny at this time period, you've got two sections of the country that want Texas for two different reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, the South wants Texas because they know that it's it sets up a blockade in the Senate for slave states. Right. More slave holding senators. The North, and it's not necessarily the North per se, as much as it is like people like Clay who want to expand his American experiment um, or is it experiment or expedition? I can't remember. Um, he wants it because look, it's going to protect the country. You know, it's going to keep us safe. It's going to open up new business. Like this is opportunity for America. And realistically it's land that's kind of unused, right? Mexico literally can't fill it. <laughs> they have right. to invite Americans in. Um, it should be ours, you know, in all reality. Um, so Webster, who was the Secretary of State at the time, um, when Texas comes to annexation in the Tyler administration, right? Because now it's it's been talk for years, and now it's coming to a head. It's the last years of Tyler's administration. He's against it. Um, uh, Tyler replaces Webster with Abel Upshur, who was the Navy Secretary. <laughs> Upshur believed that adding Texas gives us strength and protects us from the British and the French, <laughs> and it opens up more American, you know, settlements and uh, commerce. All of that was true. Mm -hmm. He also believed that the expansion would secure power in the Congress for the slaveholding states. That is also true. Um, but not everybody agrees with that part or wants that part. And so the, the Southerners at the time they feared a slave uprising. Um, the slavery, the, <clears throat> there were a lot of slaves and you know it was the white to black ratio was getting out of skew, <laughs> realistically. 
Sorry, I got the coughs. Um, and so there was this idea that simply by spreading out slavery, you kind of diffuse the situation, it make it less likely for uh, the slaves to take over realistically. Um, and this is kind of what they sell to the American people. This is their message that this is good. Um, Upshaw misleads uh, the public in his duties as Secretary of State by alleging uh, Britain tried to buy Texas in exchange for abolishing slavery. Okay, He uses his official position to write a real letter to a foreign dignitary and or share a letter, a fake letter that was never really written. I'm sorry, I misspoke there. Um, that claims that they're going to buy Texas to abolish slavery. And he does this to pull at the the emotions of mm -hmm. other people who do not want this to happen. And because, uh, again, they feel the rest of the world coming to take their peculiar institution, as they call it. Um, so this is kind of like the public face of this at the time. Tyler has two constitutional problems with an annexing Texas. One, the Constitution doesn't specify how to acquire purchases or land. Um, right. Now, there's a precedent for the Louisiana Purchase where they did this through a treaty. Um, they originally agreed to it, and then they sent it to the Senate to get approved, and that was the original thing. But again, it's still not written in the Constitution, and Madison says over and over again, in order for you to do it, it has to be explicitly written in the Constitution. If it's not written in the Constitution, there is a process to amend that. It's called the amendment process. Write it in. I don't know why Jefferson and Madison didn't write it in during their time. They should have. They should have come up with something and put it in the Constitution, but they didn't. So that leaves this open at the time. And then his second problem, or well, so to be clear, the treaty would need two-thirds of the votes in the Senate, which they're not going to get. Like it's it's 50-50 in the Senate for slavery. Um, and so the number two problem was Texas demanded that the U.S. support them if Mexico declared war, which Mexico was threatening. If you join, if you do that, we're going to war with you because we yeah. don't want to take our land. Um, so then there's this event um tyler and the administration are there at, at this um naval base to see this giant bomb called the peacemaker or weapon called the peacemaker that the americans are like showing off and it explodes and it kills upshaw and several other uh people and um this kind of this brings in john c calhoun because Upshur is now replaced by Calhoun. Calhoun promises, <clears throat> he goes, you know, he takes care of number two. Okay, he goes to the Texas people. Instead of making it something that gets written into the provision about America or the United States protecting Texas going to war, he just goes to the Texans and he tells them that if Mexico were to attack you once you join the United States, the Constitution would obligate the president to protect you, which it doesn't, because again, if it's a state, yes, but if it's not a state, which it's right. not, not part of the United States, it, you know, at the time, you know, they they were just a territory, realistically, trying to come in, and so um, Calhoun, you know, and this is this is this is the thing, right? Calhoun writes a, a letter. And this is hard to find. I, I did some research on this because it's in the book uh, Indivisible that I read. 
and I tried to find the letter. I found it on a site that I don't necessarily trust, but it it has some quotes from the book. So I'm assuming I'm trying to find the original document somewhere. Um, so if you're listening and you're like, hey, that doesn't exist or that's made, fabricated, please, by all means, share with me. Um, but from what I can tell, the fact that it's in this book, somebody fact-checked it. And I did find it on the internet, even if it's not from a regular site. So Calhoun writes a public letter to the British minister. And he basically threatens the Brit the British with war if they try to take slavery away from Texas. And I think that he does this because he thinks that Upshur letter was real. Um, <laughs> but I don't really know. Um, it's also because... I mean, what does Calhoun really say here? Let me see if I can read you a quote because it's it's a really great, you know, to hear this. Let's see here. So he says, the investigation has resulted in the settled conviction that it would be difficult for Texas in her actual condition to resist what she desires without supposing the influence and exertions of Great Britain would be extended beyond the limits assigned by Lord Aberdeen, and that if Texas could not resist the consummation of the object of her desire, would endanger both the safety and prosperity of the Union. Under this conviction, it is felt to be the imperious duty of the federal government, the common representative and protector of the states of the Union, to adopt in self-defense the most effectual measures to defeat it. Now, this is the end part of the paragraph where he's basically saying, like, the the United States government will seek to protect slavery. Um, he started out with, because uh, it's a long paragraph, I didn't want to read the whole thing. It is still with deeper concern the president regards the avowal of Lord Aberdeen of the desires of Great Britain to see slavery abolished in Texas. And he infers is endeavoring through her diplomacy to accomplish it by making the ab abolish by making the abolition of slavery one of the conditions on which Mexico should be acknowledged her independence. So this whole letter and, and it gets ridiculous at points. Um, Calhoun is making a complete political argument for his part of the country for his particular interests. He is not taking into consideration the union right mm -hmm. and this this goes back to the wilson thing this goes back to the fetterman thing this goes back to the mgd thing they are not thinking about us they are thinking about themselves and this is what calhoun was doing um and he told everybody in the world we want texas because we want to protect slavery um and what i like to tell people is you know when you're looking at a politician like you what you want to see from them is their focus because now you know their truth Right. Where is Calhoun's focus? It was always on protecting slavery. And so um, at the time, where am I here? Uh, Albert Gallatin, who was Jefferson's uh, Treasury Secretary, he he says that, uh, you know, annexing Texas would be a positive declaration of war against Mexico. Um, and it would have been realistically. Right. Um, so the Senate rejects it. They reject it, 35-16. Tyler tried to admit, uh, so Tyler takes a different approach now. And instead of going through the treaty route, he tries to admit Texas as a state by joint resolution, both houses of Congress. <coughs> this is clever. 
this is, you know, it's not written in the constitution. So you can't tell me I can't do it, um, right. but you can't do it. Um, so during this time period, this is right at the end of Tyler's um, campaign uh, tenure. Now, remember, for those of you who don't know, because I didn't tell you yet, and maybe you don't study history like I did, Tyler was not elected president. He assumed the presidency from the vice presidency after William Harrison died in office after 18 days, right? Yeah, um, short amount of time. It was like 56 days. I don't remember. Anyways, he because he lost so many people in his cabinet, he doesn't really have a party. He's kind of not even running for president at this stage of the game. Um, Polk comes out of nowhere and wins the Democratic nominate, nomination. And this is a uh, Polk's nomination win is actually very similar. I've told the story about Garfield's nomination win before. It's similar to that, but not as dramatic. He wins on the eighth ballot. He's dark horse. Nobody expects him to win. But why does Polk win? Because the people running for the Democratic nomination, one of them was Martin Van Buren. He was the guy that realistically, he was the eighth president. He has the most political power at this stage of the game for the Democratic Party. He should have won the nomination, but Calhoun and him have a grudge. <coughs> back to that nullification, back to Andrew Jackson. And Calhoun uses his political clout to stop Van Buren from winning the nomination. And, you know, that's how Polk ends up being a dark horse. Polk runs on a very Jacksonian platform, an opposition to the National Bank, uh, federal no uh, federal funded infrastructure, and protective tariffs. But he also adds in that the U.S. was entitled to all the Oregon Territory and claimed that Texas was part of the Louisiana Purchase and that it already – and that they should re-annex Texas, okay? So again, politicians lie. It's important for the citizens to be informed. Um, there's maps. There's treaties signed by people. You can look it up, um, and they could have then too. It just would have been harder. And so um, – Webster, Daniel Webster at the time, he kind of, he makes the argument that uh, you shouldn't take Texas in. He's kind of one of these nationalistic guys that actually was against it. And his thing is he's a Republican at heart. And he goes, a republic too big is doomed to fail. You know, this is <laughs> the argument that you hear all the time, right? And he goes, there should be limits to a republic, which that argument should have held sway with the Democrats at the time and what their beliefs were. But it didn't hold sway because they weren't caring about that. They were caring about slavery. Right. So um, <coughs> Clay Clay is the nominee for the, Repo uh, for the Whigs, not the Republicans, for the Whigs. And he's like, I can't believe I'm facing this James Polk guy. Who is this? You know, he's like a one-term uh, House of Reps guy. Or no, like a, he was – I can't remember his, his resume right now. But he didn't have a great resume. He was a very unimpressive man. For the most part. Uh, well, I take that back. He's impressive in the way what he got done, but unimpressive in stature. And so Clay, um, Clay completely bungles the situation over Texas because he wants Texas, but he doesn't want Texas, not under these circumstances. So he's against it, then he's for it, or then he walks it back. It makes him look like a fool. He loses the election. Polk wins. The Whig party dies. Now, Tyler is still president, and now you've had a presidential election that has confirmed that the American people want Texas. That's the mm -hmm. way he perceives it. So he's like, I'm going to get this done before I leave office. So he tries to get um, 
He tries to get the Senate to admit them as a state, but they can't decide on the question of slavery. Um, finally, there's a provision that's written where the incoming president would decide on whether it was entered as a slave state or not. It would basically, they would let them in, and then that decision would be left for the president, the next president. Tyler's like, no, man, you guys call me his accidency. Like, I don't even belong here. I'm getting this done now. He calls up his, you know, his people in Texas, and he's like, this is happening. Because with that provision, it now passes the Senate 27 to 25, which let's go back to this constitutionality thing. Do it's not a treaty. It's not a treaty. So now it's just a majority vote as opposed to a two-thirds th- two threshold. Is that how we want to bring in territory to the United States? Like, is that the, like, think of the amount of power you are bringing into the country versus the amount of power that's being wielded to get it. They need to be balanced. And this is not the way it should have been done. Not at all. Um, and so he rushes it through. And in his final days in office, John Tyler gets Texas admitted as a state, as a slave state. And then it's finally ratified um, after Texas approves and it's in. <coughs> and this basically becomes the blockade for the, for the, the, for the slaveocracy, realistically. And, you know, it's this fight. So back to the MTG thing. The idea of secession was born out of nullification and out of the idea of protecting slavery. MTG's idea of secession is just that. It's just the idea of secession. She doesn't actually have a coherent like plan or idea. She just sees and she hears people upset at what's going on. And she goes, I'm going to take my ball and go home. I don't like what you guys are doing. I don't feel like doing my job. I mean, it's just lazy and it's incompetent. Um, But people should be aware that those ideas do not go away. There are really smart people that will latch on to them. They will carve their own interests out of it, just like John C. Calhoun did with his interest of slavery. And they will divide you. They will divide the American people. And look, this was... 18 what it was what did i say 1840 1896 or something 80 36 was when texas uh declared their independence i think you're at 80, 45 by time tyler leaves office and polk enters we go to civil war in 1860 right we have the compromise of, of 1850 kind of like mending the little patches giving us just enough time to get ready for the war realistically it never went away it never went away. I've, I've had this. I had this argument on Twitter with somebody. I, somebody said, "When did the Civil War start?" Or I asked that question, and somebody's like, "1860," and I'm like, "Nah, 1828 with nullification. That's when it started." Um, and they're like, "No, that's crazy." And I'm like, "Yes, it is. If you track the steps that led to it." And so, the thing is, is most Americans didn't know what was going on. Like they just weren't informed. It was really hard to be informed back then. And then you're just lied to. You're lied to so much by people. Um, you know, they mask their real their real thoughts because yeah. they, it's not going to be good, you know? Right, there's um, the talking points and stuff. And uh, there was a big part in, in Congress too where they, would, um, they wouldn't let petitions come forward. Like people would send petitions and say, oh, we need to we get rid of slavery and they would actively suppress them. Well, and I believe in, yeah, even like the South, like if you try to send out a pamphlet, 
the post office itself would would not distribute it so the information couldn't get through and that was one of the greatest like restrictions on the first amendment ever right mm -hmm. so like the idea of nullification came from the alien sedition act where the democrats the democratic republicans were really upset because that's a restriction on free speech but then the democrats used that idea of nullification and then enforce the slaveocracy into the the gag rule into the uh, the house where you can't even talk about slavery which means you're not even allowed to try to sway the opinions of the other representatives that is ridiculous that yeah. is a restriction on your representation it's a restriction on your free speech that's an attack that's an act of you know war congressional mm -hmm. war to, you know, not active war, but passive war. And that's how you end up with actual war is when legislators are having their own passive war for their own selfish interest, and they're not considering the American people. And that is what is happening with MTG. Like I compared Andrew Jackson and um, Donald Trump a lot together. And because they kind of both came in and like unmasked this corrupt aristocracy and everybody is like, hey, Look at that. But the difference is, is Andrew Jackson is not the villain that people tell us he was. He's not the hero. You know, I mean, he's a guy. He's a flawed individual who was doing the best he could, and he had principles, and he stuck by them. Donald Trump had no principles, and Donald Trump did not get the office on his own. There was a – that aristocracy lifted him up the same way that the aristocracy lifted John, um, Jack, Jackson up. Calhoun helped him get the office. Van Buren helped him get the office. And then when Jackson was out, all those people grasped for his power, and that's what you see happening right now with Trump being gone. You know, MTG's grasping for the power. Um, uh, Gates grasped for power. McCarthy's grasping for power. They're all trying to suck it up, and they're all trying to use it for their advantage. Um and when you're reading history and when you're trying to figure out who is the good guy, who is the bad guy, who was right and who was wrong, because sometimes good people do bad things and sometimes bad people do good things. So it's hard to figure out. And one of my favorite ways to figure out what's right and what's wrong is, like I said before, read all the stories, figure yeah. out the different perspectives. That's a good help. And then <clears throat> listen to the people that were closest to those. So this is a quote from Benjamin Silman, who was a friend of uh, John C. Calhoun's. And he goes, um, he was a first-rate young man, Silman wrote of his old student, quote, both for scholarship and talent and for pure, pure and gentlemanly conduct, but his mind was of a peculiar structure and his views were often peculiar. With sadness, Silman wrote, while I mourn for Mr. Calhoun as a friend, I regard the political course of his later years as direct disastrous to his country and not honorable to his memory, although I believe he had persuaded himself it was right. And we talked about that in our class. The people that are doing bad things often have convinced themselves that they're right, even mm -hmm. when they're wrong. And it's our responsibility as people to be educated and informed enough to go, you are wrong, and here is why. And you're hurting us. Um, and we should be doing that with MTG. And it's disappointing because I don't think that we have – we don't have a media that's doing it. I mean you look at CNN. They're putting that – did you see what they put that lady from the – from the um, Trump case in Georgia on TV, and she's like completely unqualified to be on TV. 
Like the idea that our media puts people like that on TV and not people like you and I, like serious people that actually care, who actually want to do something, like it's just like, oh, and it doesn't have to be us. There's plenty of serious people out there that are not on TV. I meet them all the time. They're professors, they're, they're teachers, you know, they're students of history. And they and they're like, look, guys, this is serious. Listen to us. And they're like, no, that's not entertaining enough. Not but, entertaining, and it doesn't fit in a 30-second soundbite. So good, yeah, you know, yeah. don't want it. Don't want it. But you know. We got to do better, man. Um, you brought up the slaveocracy and the gag rule. I want to talk about that. I I got a little paper I'm writing about that recently. I do, I do love me some John QA. Uh, <laughs> well, um, I mean, who doesn't love John QA? I think you probably lead into it. Like you left the presidency and you went back to House of Representatives because you knew that he still had work to do and um, our country needed someone to be the voice of reason. Yeah. Uh, I wish we had somebody like that right now. Um, you know, I've talked about, um, who is it? Uh, who did I want to make speaker? Amash. But he's Amash. not even in Congress anymore. I mean, I feel like anybody that had a reasonable voice, like, just left. Like, they just were like, I can't do this. These primary elections are killing me. I'm out. Um, and now we're left with a bunch of people who just, ugh. man, it's embarrassing. <laughs> it is embarrassing. So it's not ideal, I think. But I think you know we can get through it. Been through, <laughs> been through bad situations before. Been through people trying to uh, secede, and um, you know now we we have the benefit of hindsight. We have a little bit of wisdom to go along with it. Well, and that's the thing that kills me, right? It's because like we have all this history, we have all this information, and in my <clears> their <throat> job to understand this stuff and learn from it. Um, it's disappointing when they don't, um, because look, it's my kids' future at stake, right? Like. <laughs> I don't know what they're thinking, but like the regular people are the ones that suffer, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, if you make under, you know, I, I, this number is going to sound crazy to, to some Americans that make, that don't make a lot of money, but realistically, if you make under $500,000 a year, you're a regular American. Like you're not part of the 1%. Like you're probably even at making like a net worth of $500,000, dep depending on where you live, right? Like if you make $500,000 a year and you live in a rural part of North Carolina, you're probably doing pretty good. But if you live outside of DC making $500,000, yeah, you're doing really good, but you're probably still pretty tight keeping up with the guys that make more than you. Yep. No, I mean, there's an arms race aspect to all that too. Right. And so you're going to be hurt. Like you may think you feel safe, um, but it's, that's just, that's a false sense of security. Like, <laughs> so we got to do better. We got to elect better people. So John, talk about some education tonight. What do you think? I know, I know you've been on that. It's bad. It's all, that's what I say. Oh, it's all, it's, it's, it's all, uh, you had a nice little rant on uh, our meeting on, on Saturday and um, yeah. I gave you your, your least favorite uh and admonition that you should run for school board <laughs> i mean like that's it's you talked about um just the the way the whole classroom gets set up and the fact that that there's sort of um i'd say there's like agency at certain levels in terms of like well the teacher can do certain things the principal can do certain things but at the end of the day there's so many layers of bureaucracy that um things get lost in the shuffle and i think there's there's sort of an incentive where if you circle the wagons and you just try to like deflect and obfuscate, like eventually people will go away. You know, you could have a father who's like, Hey, this is what happened to my daughter. Wasn't, isn't good. Can you fix this? And they say, well, maybe think about it. Maybe. Right. And it just kind of like, it just keeps going and it gets worse and worse and worse. And I, 
um, you know, I, I would say like, um, I hate to say like burn it all down because that's that's never a good thing. But, you know, like I think down, being down. informed, understand really being informed about what's going on is probably the best for all, for to fix this. Yeah, I mean, you know, with my with my situation, it's just more about like in every situation that I've ever run into with the school is the people that I get to talk to never have any power. Mm -hmm. Like, and even even in not in my situations with school, like I've gone in and met with teachers and principals just on any chance I can get. You know, when the school puts out an invite, I'm like, I'm there, right? And I typically ask teachers and principals the same question: Do you feel like you have the ability to hold your students accountable? And the answer is almost ever, it's always no. Um, every principal I've ever asked has said that. Every teacher I've ever asked has said that. I don't know how you're supposed to be in a, play, a position of authority with 28 students in your classroom when you can't hold anybody accountable. And if, as a principal, I don't know how you're supposed to hold your teachers accountable when you have no power, when it's mm -hmm. all done by a bureaucracy. They set the rules for you. And it's, it's, oh. it's frustrating right? Because like you have a real problem and the person that you're talking to agrees with you and they have no way to stop it. Like you are completely and utterly powerless. And it, I got on a reading binge and I read this book recently. It's Brave New World by, you know what? I don't know how to pronounce Aldous, it. Aldous Huxley. Thank you. You knew I, you knew I would struggle with that. Um, and man, is it not like... I I literally I said I read this in in like one day I I picked it up at Barnes and Noble yesterday and I finished it last night before I went to bed. That's how good it it's was. um it's like scary. Just Ooh. first of all, if you haven't read this book, go read this book first. Okay, it's the People's Tycoon. It's about Henry Ford. It's really important in understanding what he's talking about. Um, John, I don't know if you remember, but Ford is like their deity in this book um which is you know interesting because he is the one that comes up with this like social conditioning type thing that he tries to institute in his board plants and he's the one that really kind of propels the consumerism that we live in he propels that standardization of society that we live in and that has realistically all been applied to our education system mm -hmm. and no and it's all about standardization it's all about teaching the same thing i mean and again like in, in theory, like teaching, making sure that there's some kind of standard is probably a good thing. But I would say where it breaks down is in terms of taking agency, where you say like a teacher can't really um, try new things without uh, perhaps feeling like they're, someone's going to look over their shoulder and say, that's you shouldn't be doing that. I think um, the other challenge is the, the the model that we train teachers. Like it's not just like the fact that teachers all have to teach the same thing, all the fit that whatever the standards are. But it's the fact that every teacher goes through the same process where if you don't have an education degree, if you don't have a master's in education, you're actually limited from teaching. And this whole process of going through the learning uh, through the education school means that every teacher is going to be trained the same way. Right. So theoretically, if you're training them appropriately, maybe that's not a bad thing. But if we can all kind of recognize that like education is kind of falling off a cliff right. in terms of Students aren't getting any better. We're spending a lot more money on there. Um, there's layers and layers of bureaucracy in order to try to like fix the problem of kids not succeeding, but it's not getting any better. Like, you know, maybe we should re re step, take a couple steps back and sort of go through that like five whys of why are we in this situation? Like, is it because of 
the curriculum? Is it because of the way that teachers are being trained? Is it because of um, the fact that the people running the school are kind of teachers that don't like teaching, and so they they have to get they get promoted into the levels of of bureaucracy where they control things, but you know they don't have you know the decisions they make don't have day to day they don't see the day the effects of the of the decisions they make in the day to day operation of the school and the day to day classrooms. Yeah. So like you hit on so many things there. So um, let me think back. The book really got me thinking, um, thinking about another book I read uh, called Dumbing Us Down, uh, mm -hmm. Hidden Curriculum of Compulsive, Compulsory Schooling. Um, it was written by a teacher, John Taylor Gatto. Gatto. I'm not good at pronouncing names. I am sorry. Um, and he he argues in the book that modern the modern education system, rather than helping students um, become educated and critical thinkers, actually hinders their development and reinforces a culture of conformity and obedience, <clears throat> which is exactly what a brave new world is, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's 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 a it's a story of a culture that has gotten rid of emotion. They've gotten rid of uh, pain, suffering, pain and suffering. Um, and they've made you believe that your life is good based on where they put you. And they have five caste systems and they, they condition you from birth. Right. And so let me read you just a little, read you, read the audience here. Where'd it go? Um, so let's see. Books and loud noises, flowers and electric shocks. Already in the infant mind, these couples were com uh, com <coughs> man. I'm sorry to the audience with all my coughing today. I apologize. Um, were compromising, link uh, compromisingly linked, and after 200 repetitions of the same or similar lesson, would be wielded. Um, darn it! I don't know how to say that word out loud. I only say these words in my head sometimes. Um, what man has joined nature is powerless to put asunder. They grow up with, with what the psychologists used to call an instinctive hatred of books and flowers. Reflexes, ability conditioned. <clears throat> They'll be safe from books and botany all their lives. And so what this, you know, my very terrible reading of this is explaining is in certain casts, they shape you not mm -hmm. to like to read not to like nature because they found this was counterproductive to what they were needed for in the labor force. And I can't help think that's what's broken with our education system, right? All this idea of you have to know this, all these standards that they put in place. And what they do is they never bother to teach anyone how to read. And there's a lot of talk about equality and equity and all students need all these great opportunities. And I go, look, the difference between the upper class of society and the lower class of society is not wealth. It is not money. It is time. It is mm -hmm. always time. And if you want to give the lower class of society a chance to raise themselves up, create an atmosphere where the students are co come into class. They have plenty of outside time. They have plenty of time for lunch. 
and they have plenty of time to read whatever they want to read. It doesn't really matter. Like it doesn't matter what they learn. It, all your standards just need to be thrown out the window and you, your focus should be on teaching these kids how to read. I graduated from the Prince William County school system and I did not know how to read, right? Like I, I could read a paragraph, but I could not read a book. And I think what determines whether you can or cannot read is whether you can actually sit and read a book when you want to. If you're not reading um, like a full book a year or a couple books a year, you're not really reading realistically. You're not taking in the right amount of information. And so many people are put in this position because of where they, you know, their class is society and the school system just doesn't care. They're like, hey, just pass these tests memorize this information, get through the system. And then afterwards, your society's problem. We don't care, right? <laughs> but there's some, there's some virtue to memorizing information. Like I, I would push back a little bit. Like if you want to understand how things work, like you need to know facts. Like going back to this discussion of history and stuff, like now that you memorize the history, but you, you've read through it and you can remember things and you can kind of... Uh, build the picture like you've talked about i need to read the same story from a bunch of different perspectives but if you can't remember things between those different stories like what's the point the fact is you you need to you are information is getting into your brain and it's sticking there now whether that's like rote memorization or it is the ability to uh, time to read through something like that is key um and i would uh, just to, to say like you did graduate from high school and couldn't read i feel like i was the same thing like i went to a really nice private school and i learned a lot of things but I definitely couldn't like read. And I think it, I just picked stuff up through the classroom and stuff, but it wasn't until a couple years out of college. Um, and I was kind of unsure what to do. And I thought, well, maybe I should study. I should become a lawyer or something. So I, I did a little bit of research in terms of like what you might do to prepare for the LSAT. And I drilled myself on like 60 different LSATs. And part of the LSAT is that this whole reading comprehension thing, you have to read a paragraph and answer questions about that. And that was when I was finally able to sit down focus and actually understand the text like you know you you ask in the group chat like uh who's here is read moby dick and um and one of the other members of well i was in a class that taught him i was totally in a class where moby dick was read i think maybe i read bits bits and pieces here but i and i would like listen to the discussion in class but i certainly don't think i could ever say i really read and understood moby dick like i know the general idea of there's uh queequeg and captain ahab and a white whale that they're chasing but like you said like, well, how does it compare to like with Andrew Jackson and stuff? Like, I, I couldn't tell you that. And like, <laughs> you know, like that's a key thing of, of reading. It's, it is catching on the subtleties, um, not just the the main story and, and the, the the main plot line. Well, so let me back up. I don't really mean this forever, right? Like, mm -hmm. I guess I'm talking about elementary school. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So like K through 10 should be basic arithmetic, right? And that should be ta taught, you know, intermittently. Um, but for the most part, your focus, like, and this is, again, to the politician thing, like, where is people's focus? Your focus should be on teaching the kids how to read, and your focus should be allowing the kids to be kids. They have a lot of pent-up energy. They need to wear mm -hmm. it out, do things outside, let them socialize, and then give them time to read. Once they learn how to read and they have a love for learning, because when you are allowing kids to learn what they want to learn, they want to learn, Right. right? My son is like obsessed with reptiles and he knows all these random facts about reptiles. I 
hate these things. Like I am not, they're slimy, they're yucky, whatever, but it interests him, right? So like, he's not a big reader, but he reads about this, right? And I give him the opportunity to do so, right? And that's important. He doesn't have that in school. And not every parent have the opportunity at home, especially when talking to like, if you're talking to like somebody in the lower class, like maybe that kid, like, you know, helps out a lot with his younger brothers and sisters, you know, maybe it's got homework, the homework keeps him busy, you know, he doesn't have time, he doesn't have the support at home. Giving the kids the time in class to read is really important. Now, once you get to middle school, then you get a little bit more of a structured learning environment, right? And I, I take this back from like, understanding how John Quincy Adams learned, how Woodrow Wilson believed learning should be done, how Frederick Douglass was educated, right? Mm -hmm. This is how they were educated. These are some of the brightest, smartest people ever to walk the United States of America. And we have a system that is the antithesis of what they believed education should be. Um, these yeah. are the people that wrote the idea, like John Adams, you know, he, he, he was, he, I think he wrote into the Massachusetts um, constitution, something about education. And how important it was to have a highly educated or a, you know, adequately educated society in a self-governing republic. Um, and this, so you get to middle school, you start a little philosophy, you start a little of these different things, but you also, you still allow the kids to pick what they want to learn about. You give them a few different options. You don't have to, I think like what the education system is doing <laughs> In so many circumstances, especially when it comes to technology, they're just training a labor force. Yeah. That's all they're doing. And, and you mentioned it with like the restrictions on teaching. You have to go through the education system and pay them all this money for them to give you the privilege to teach, right? And like, they're not even teaching the right way. And these teachers, they grew up in this system that hurt a lot of people like myself, and they think that it's right. And so now they're doing it to another generation of people. Why are kids unhappy? Why are people misinformed? Why are there high depression rates and anxiety rates and all these different things? It's because you are shaping people to be the same, right? And I'm going to, let me pull from this book here. If you got something to add, go ahead and, and add it real quick while I try to find this quote because I didn't mark it. No, I, I think um, I look at the, like, the fact that uh, our kids had this nature study and like that was it was great because it's an opportunity to walk around birds of energy it's an opportunity to explore the world around you and kind of fall in love with nature and and to be uh to, to foster a healthy curiosity of like why does why do the trees behave this way what what the site the cycle of nature in terms of um winter and then spring and then summer and then fall and, and all around so I think there are certainly things that are missing from education in general that we can definitely add in. I mean, like you talk about with the botany in the books and, and Brave New World, like I think we're missing a little bit of, of um, studying and teaching about the natural world uh, to help us uh, appreciate it. Um, you know, I think that would be all this environmental talk about global warming and stuff, but they don't really talk about like the, the why, you know, it's more just like, well, global warming, global warming. Uh, right. And I think, um, <laughs> Fostering a, a healthy sense of of our ability as caretakers, uh, our, our duty as caretakers would, would be good too. Yeah, I mean, it, you made me think about uh, Teddy Roosevelt, right? Mm -hmm. Like as a child, like he was watching Earth, 
I like to use the word observing animals in their natural habitats. And he was studying them. And by the time he became like a very young adult, he was writing books about this stuff. Like he was self-taught. Like he taught himself. He just observed. Like you got to mm-hmm. think everything that is written in a book, realistically, at some point in time, every piece of science, everything was learned by a person at some point on right. their own. Like they had to come to this understanding on their own or with a group of other human beings. And this idea that you just have to memorize what somebody else has already thought, like it kills critical thinking. Like it absolutely, it, 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 it puts people into a state of submission. It's disappointing, John. It's no, disappointing. It's, it's disappointing. Here's my quote. Or where's my, I can't believe it. I thought I had it flagged. I have to re, uh, rethink your, your reading system then if, if you can't. Well, so, you know, it's funny. I don't do the the annotations nearly as detailed when I'm reading a nonfiction or a, a fiction book. Mm, yeah. Just because like I'm typically I'm typically reading a fiction book for me, mm-hmm. right? It's not study. This just happened to be like, it just, I knew it was. Like my theory was that a brave new world is basically the Democratic Party. This is their, this is their platform. Like their whole goal is to say yes to everything, to make us believe that suffering isn't part of the human existence and that they can remove it for us if we just give them our power and they'll they'll medicate us and do whatever into submission there's even like a talk about the the sexuality of like whatnot in here and i'm just like this is so on par with what is going on on the progressive end of the political spectrum and then this is next up and my theory here is this is the the right side of the aisle right now. Like we're literally battling between these two dystopian fantasies. Uh, 1984 is on the right and Brave New World is on the left. And we're kind of just trapped in the middle as people. Yeah, that was my thought because I read them both. I, re- I had read 1984 earlier, but I reread it. And then I read Brave New World because it came on Amazon as a two-pack. Uh, imagine that. But it, it truly feels like they're both, um, they're both trying to tell the same story of... Uh, control over people's lives and how do you control information and how do you uh, shape people into what someone's I would say incorrectly uh shape someone into someone's ideal but like it is there they are intertwined and you can see how both um caricatures of 1984 and brave new world are present in our politics and it's um it is just very disconcerting yeah um it's scary, man. Like it mm-hmm. seriously is. Um, and what I try to tell people is like, don't go off the deep end and think this is some massive conspiracy because it's not. These people just don't know what they're doing. Yeah. It's just no. human nature. It's just it's bad, human. badly formed human nature. <laughs> it human beings are naturally self-interested and these things are profitable. Like you keep giving them their money. There's uh, I, my, my biggest uh, pet peeve right now is, my wife watches TV. Well, not as much as she used to, but like that's her like when life gets really stressful with work and stuff, like she needs to zone out. She watches what I call trash TV. So she watches like women's programming on Hulu. Oh man, all the coughing today, John. Um, and there's this commercial that runs when she watches TV that doesn't run when I watch TV because of the type of programming that I watch. And it's a hers commercial. Are you familiar with this? Yes. With uh, Kristen. Birth control over mail or something? Oh, I haven't seen the commercial, but hers is the uh, birth is... control by mail, right? 
it's it's uh medication by mail yeah, okay and so Kristen, um what's her name from um Kristen Bill? bill yeah she's in the commercial and there's like five of her and it's like all of her different like personalities or whatever <laughs> and basically it's like don't let taking uh being you know bipolar and all these different like illnesses don't let it become stigmatized get your medication by mail like they're making it easier to get the mm-hmm. medication and i think back to like when my son was struggling in school and the school was like hey he might be ADD. And I took him to the doctors and they were like, here's medication. And like, they didn't test him or anything. They just gave him the medication. They were like, let's see what happens. I, of course, like as a parent, I'm young. I don't really know what I'm doing. And I'm like, this sounds wrong, yeah. but I'm going to believe you because you're the authority. <laughs> and so what I did is I have ADD. I've been tested. I took the medication with him and I like felt what it was, but I didn't like the way he acted on it. And I didn't like the way I acted on it. So I stopped taking it and I had him stop taking it, but I learned from it. I was like, Hey, now I understand what my brain's doing wrong. I just need focus. Right. And I need to wear myself out and I need Mm -hmm. to be able to focus. And I taught my son that, and he's excelled in school. Like he's an honor roll student and he doesn't take ADD medication, even though they said he needed it. No, he was just diagnosed as being a boy. He's just diagnosed as being a boy. Right. And so I look at this commercial and I go, like, they're trying to wipe away the stigma of all these very serious problems of anxiety, depression, bipolar, all these things. And all that's going to do, and they're making it easier to get medication, it's just going to, you're just going to medicate the wrong people. And Mm -hmm. again, back to this whole brave new world, that's what they're doing. You take the symposium or whatever, Soma. 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 Um, You take that and that like wipes away all your problems. You feel happy. Right. Because if it's real to you, it's real. Right. That's right. But it's not, you know, <laughs> I mean, all I could think of when I was re- reading and they talk about so much like, oh, this is just like the marijuana industry right here. Well, I mean, I would say that marijuana is a little bit different because it's at least natural. Right. It like grows on a tree and you take it as opposed to well, like. The- so is so is heroin. But ah, well, you make a good point. You make a very good point. I mean, uh, <clears throat> nuclear <laughs> nuclear uh, uranium is. is um is natural but we recognize that it has positive and be- negative influence i mean like uh you know the, the flip side of heroin is um morphine like that's a very powerful drug that can be very helpful in someone who's dealing with pain due to a medical uh situation like i i'm not poo-pooing like solving pain and stuff but i think that it's the um going back to using it appropriately like right. if you think about just uranium if you use it appropriately you can power a city if you use it inappropriately you can level a city and you can destroy lives. So I, I think like um, in and of itself, you're right. Marijuana, what is it? Just like cultivated hemp and stuff. I mean, like um, someone was telling me like it's been in India for uh, a long time, but they I mean, sort of Thomas they it appropriately. So and Thomas, really, Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, yeah. I mean, like- Smoked marijuana. Yeah, you know, but it, <laughs> it's, a, it's um, well, you, as you said before, he was a little peculiar, so maybe- uh, <laughs> I mean, no one should be surprised that Thomas Jefferson smoked pot. Yeah. So um, it's, um, you know, I think it's it's complicated, and I think it's it goes back to like, are you using it appropriately in in a certain situation? But you know, when it's like soma and it's just trying to escape, I'd say that is right. appropriate. And so, the other thing that they talk about in the book is, you know, you only know what you know, mm-hmm. right? And you become very because they separate and they standardize everybody. You completely you become completely dependent 
on them. And so one of the characters in the books gets lost on a reservation of regular people of, of, you know, and she stays there and she ages. And like during her stay, you know, she has a baby. She's not able to take care of him adequately. People make fun of them because when the, when the kid gets a rip in his clothes, she doesn't know how to sew it because she was never taught that in, in, in her society, when something is broken, you throw it away and you get another one, right? Because that is how, you know, consumerism works. And that's how the whole system works. And if you stop doing that, then the whole thing breaks down. And um, I think that's so much to what's happening to us. And you, you brought up earlier, um, you want to talk about the chat GPT and the Bing, right? And doesn't that kind of play a role into like, if you take away somebody's ability to learn and, and be educated and you become dependent on something or someone else, then what happens when they're wrong? Right. Um, so there's uh, a lot of discussion around ChatGPT around the Bing AI called Sydney. Um, and some people will say, well, we should be really concerned about this. I think apparently there was a Google engineer who thought like Google's AI was living. He leaked confidential uh, messages and stuff, and then he got fired. So there's there's certainly concern around this. I, I've always kind of been on the more skeptical side in terms of like, well, it's literally just a correlation engine. It's just like looking at text and it says, well, this little bit of text kind of goes with this little bit of text. And then it, it gives you something that sounds plausible. And so that was kind of, that's kind of been my thought about this, but it really occurred to me um, today where maybe that is a problem because if you think about wisdom in general and sort of like prudence and practical wisdom, really what you're trying to do is you're trying to have the right answer at the right situation. And so if your whole corpus that you, you know, that what you feed an AI is just previous situations and previous answers to situations. And if generally, um, you know, like there's sort of like this, uh, this golden mean where in general we get things right. So if in general, if you're feeding sort of the right information to an AI, it's kind of always gonna give you back something that sounds plausible and is mostly right. And so if you don't flex that muscle of being critical of what it says, and you're not really an expert per se, and you can kind of see through it what's wrong, you might start to be, you know, even if we know that it's just a correlation engine, and we know that it's not alive, and it's there's no personality behind it, the fact that it's able to sort of be right most of the time is going to lull us into this sense that maybe it is right most, you know, we should think about it more times. Um, and go to it more often because, well, it's just easier to not think about it and just say, well, it's most likely going to be right. I'll just use ChatGPT. And so we we kind of atrophy our natural ability to think through a problem and reason through a problem. And I think that's the real danger. It's not necessarily that the AI is going to be like, oh, you should go kill Bob because, you know, in general, we'll realize that we probably shouldn't kill Bob. Um, <laughs> but you're going to, if you're going to start outsourcing your thought to something and say, well, I don't need to sort of think critically I just know that it's mostly going to be right. And, you know, maybe someone will correct me if it's wrong. Like, I think that's the real danger right there. It's, it's, it's the fact that we're going to lose the ability to um, think critically and to really be humans and to look at a situation and try to find the right answer to it. Well, I mean, this kind of plays into the idea of like what I think is wrong with our society and what happens to all societies realistically is four generations mm-hmm. is like, we know our fathers and we know our grandfathers, yeah. but we really don't know our great grandfathers, mm-hmm. right? Because we never got to see them or talk to them for most of us. And so when you get from here to here, 
these people don't remember these people. They don't remember the lessons. They and and they were passed down, but each one of these people in between, they kind of put their own spin on things. And these people, they believe it. They don't question it. And now you've got this society that's misled. Well, that happens in government. That's what mm-hmm. we're going through now. You know, people believe that the election system that we have is right, that the fund rate, but you're wrong. Like you're hundred percent wrong. Our founders would not have agreed with it. Um, they would have fought it tooth and nail. You've you've concentrated power outside of the of uh, the government into two political parties, and they control it with wealth. Hundred percent. That's what the PACs and the parties do. They control it with money. And the whole system of government we had was designed to stop that from happening because that's what happened in um, Britain, right? That's what we didn't want to happen here. And so, like. If you think about that four generations from now, like our great, great, great grandchildren, what are they going to think? They're not going to, you know, if you propel this and you are progressive, right? Let's use that word. If you continue on this path, progressing this, this lack of thought, this lack of reading, this, you know, take the drugs, it'll make you feel better. Drink the alcohol. It supports your economy, you know, um, by all means, watch the murderous rampage on television that's pretend because it scares you and it makes you feel something. And realistically, you hate your job so much and you just need that relaxed, you know? What's going to happen when that's all that a society sees? They don't see real life. They don't do anything else. And they don't think for themselves. Man, that is a scary thought. That's a society that can be taken advantage of by somebody Mm -hmm. like I don't know, a crazy person like Hitler, right? (laughs) You know, like that's a society that an authoritarian government can come in and control. You know, I mean, look at China. Look at, you know, they're in submission. You know, they're a standardized society. You know, they they concentrate power and separate things out so the, the individual citizens don't have that much. They completely control things. No, you get like a Julius Caesar almost too. Like, I mean, like it, again, history repeats itself and you've got, uh, the Roman Republic eventually falls into decay because uh, people get used to their bread and circuses. And then you, someone like Julius Caesar comes on because there are, is dissent and there's dissension and people fighting with each other. And um, you basically, uh, you know, someone take, takes rises and, and takes control. Sorry. Let me give a drink. I'm sorry. I'm going to keep on coughing. One second. I'm sorry. So, I mean, you were um, talking about what our forefathers would say. My Katie sent me this uh, screenshot from I think next door, and um, someone's asking. In no way do I ask this question sarcastically, but what qualifies one to run for political office? And he answers himself, and he says, "Certainly, in today's race, qualifications point towards having at least one million dollars in the bank, a career as a lawyer, land developer, and tenure on a board, political committees, war veterans, etc." Maybe it's time we try something different. And uh, I said, uh, you know, I hearted it in our little um, message chain because it's so true. Like it, we uh, we're stuck. Um, we don't understand what makes a good statesman. We're stuck with the system that w- we inherited per se because it it came about. But you know, nothing is set in stone, and we can certainly fix it and change it. And, uh, that was one of the things we tried to talk about on Saturday. Is that uh, Things can be corrected. Well, and and how they get corrected is with an informed citizenry, 
right? And, and what the job is, what a representative's job is, is to listen and to inform. Mm-hmm. And how they do that is by reading and understanding law and history. And if your representative isn't doing that, then they're not doing their job. If they're worried about fundraising, they're not doing their job. They have manipulated you into believing they're doing their job, but right. they are not doing their job. And I'll, I'll tell you, there are political representatives running for office right now that I have spoken to that say things that are not accurate as far as the rules and how the you know the laws of our constitution work. And when challenged on that, they push back and they say, well, I don't know if that's true, but they don't give any reasoning. But then here's the kicker. I go, well, I've got a book on this. I'm happy to loan you. And when I heard when I heard this, I swear my blood curdled. I'm not going to read your book. If your representative is not reading a book a month, they are not qualified for office, plain and simple. You, the regular citizen, you don't have to read a book a month. But the person that is leading your country, that is representing you, oh man, you want that person reading because that's that's how you do law. That's how you legislate. You need to understand everything that came before you because everything is based off of precedent and rules and regulations. And you have to understand that. And there are hundreds and thousands of years of history for you to go through to understand how to do this job. And it's always changing and always evolving. And you're never going to know it all. And that's your job is to study. And then to use that knowledge to lead the people appropriately. And if you're if you go to your representative, the number one question you should ask, what are you reading right now? What are you reading? And if they give you an answer of nothing or something that sounds crackpot, then don't vote for them. I don't care what side of the aisle they're on. I don't care about the other guy. Go to the other guy and challenge them. And then if you can't find them, go find somebody else to run for office flat out. Like make that your mission in life. Um, so one of the things that you said, um, earlier made me think of the quote that we started out with our meeting on, because you were talking about Caesar and the Roman Republic Mm -hmm. and all that. And so Plutarch said, an imbalance between rich and poor is the oldest and most fatal ailment of all republics. Remember our Republic, our house was supposed to be represented by regular people. Your description that you just read about what it is to be qualified for office You have to have at least a million dollars in the bank. Yeah, pretty much. That is a discrimination of wealth. It's a wealth barrier flat out. It is unconstitutional as far as I'm concerned. It's unrepresentative of a representative democracy. And the American people should be very upset about this. But they're not because nobody talks about it. And, you know, everybody talks about the corruption, but they just they've got their blinders on and they're like, well, my guys are fighting for me, so I need to. I need to give them my money and then, and be like, do you know what they're spending your money on? Do you? Cause it's not the right things. I mean, look at making more people on. millionaires, making more people millionaires on their own businesses. That's what they do. The whole operation is like, come, let me pay the consultants and the consultants pay their own businesses. And that money circular funds back into their pockets. They put on parties. Yeah. So not ideal, not ideal, not ideal. All right. So what else is going on, John? Got anything else coming up? Uh, we got a meeting on March 18th on, uh, what is it? Uh, representation, right? <laughs> Summit of representation. Representation is communication. That's it. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Um, and, uh, oh, I wanted to uh, give a shout out. My friend uh, Adam 
has a podcast. Uh, it's called It's That Simple. And uh, he shares a pretty cool story this week. It's actually about me. Um, we've been friends for a really long period of time, about uh, 10 years or so. And uh, I recently, you know, I recently got baptized. It's something new. Um, professing my faith uh, publicly is definitely something new for me. And uh, he tells a story and it, it was really cool to listen to because he talks about um, a conversation that we had like outside of Wegmans like 10 years ago. And it's like, man, he remembers that, you know, and it's like, and I remember it too. Like it was, it was a big part of my life. It kind of helped me on the path that I am. And, you know, for me, my faith is, it's made me a better person. It's made me a better husband. It's made me a better father. And I am so grateful for it. Um, and I'm very grateful for all the people that kind of like, like I, I tell them is like, you did not reject me. So many times in my life I had met and talked to people. And when I didn't agree with what they agreed with, they rejected me. And all these people along the way, they just love me. And they just go, hey, I disagree with you. And that's cool. We're allowed to disagree. And let's still be friends and let's still do all these things. And they never pushed me. They were never like, we need you to believe these things. They they let me come to it on my own, right? Um, and it's so Adam tells his his. Uh, part of the story. It's wonderful. Adam's a great podcaster. Uh, if you want to check it out, it's on Spotify and Apple. Um, I think Anchor. We'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, yeah, we'll link it in the show notes. We'll link, link it in the show notes. notes. Yeah. So take a, take a listen. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see. Was there anything else? I think there was something else I wanted to mention, John, but I think I've forgotten now. Oh, well. That happens to me. There's always next week. I got all these books in front of me. I think I... I, think I I, I hit the Calhoun one. I got the Ford one. I got the Wilson one. I got the, yeah, I think I'm good. <laughs> All right. So um, like John mentioned, our next meeting is March 18th. You can RSVP at MadisonianRepublicans.com. Um, if you have any questions, uh, you know, reach out, comment, subscribe, like, and share. And remember, peace and love.